มุทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนัมสังสุขนะดูอบเซอร์วินส์เดย์ลุนควอเตอร์ชานส์ที่ปฏิสติกันถึง12โมงเช้านี้ When we uh, consider teachings of the Buddha, I, I always like to consider the two realms of the teachings. And uh, one realm is the what we call the worldly, or Vinaya, or the conventional world, or the world of uh, responsibilities and relationships, within which there's. Uh, Our capacities to communicate, to express ourselves, to be creative, um, to live a moral life, to practice generosity. So, uh, our social side, and this is we call it the worldly dharmas, but worldly sometimes sounds like a kind of pejorative word, and, and the other is more important. But our social lives are very important. The way we Communicate with each other the way we express ourselves, because those have consequences uh, for our meditation. And when we look at um, the recommendations the Buddha gives us, um, morality and generosity are always foremost in the graduated teaching. They're foremost uh, in the paramis. They're foremost. The last. Life, the kind of allegorical story of the Buddha's past lives in the Jatakas, the s a n t r a the last life is generosity, and these are not to to be belittled. These are you know, powerful uh, factors in consciousness, uh, <clears throat> because a, a a life lived gener- generously and with um, a sense of philanthropy. Philanthropy is the love of humans. A sense of philanthropy. Is is significant for the way our consciousness uh, meditates, the way we meditate on things. And in in Indian philosophy, you know, you have the, the schools of yoga. So you have the uh, Yana Yoga and Bhakti Yoga and Karma Yoga. And I have a, I have a friend in uh, I had a friend who died now in uh, New Zealand who had on his. Um, On his mantelpiece, he had four pictures. One was of Mother Teresa. One was of Ramakrishna. One was Ramana Maharshi, and one was Lumpur Cha. And so he asked them, "What are what are those those four pictures?" And he said, "Oh, the Ramakrishna is the the, the Bhakti Yoga." And Ramakrishna, I don't know if you've read of him, but he his uh, he had this. Um, profound sense of devotion to the mother, um, and uh, his whole surrender is this very, uh, very Indian. The way he did that, and it's uh, it's said that he was an enlightened being, very very beautiful being from all the accounts I've read. And then uh, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa's uh, karma yoga, service, um, and. Many of you have probably heard that story where 
Mother Teresa is praised for setting up hospices for people dying in urban, urban, in, urban India. And Mother Teresa so I didn't set that up for the people dying, I set it up for the nuns. Place of practice. There's a, a, a book I read quite a long time ago about the outbreak of AIDS and the, the scientific uh, competition to try to find the cure for AIDS. Quite a fascinating book. And there's, a, there's a, an aside there, a kind of side story of <clears throat> uh, Mother Trace's nuns. And uh, the, the story goes that there, there was a, a girl who belonged to the caste that burned the bodies in, in Benares. And the, the caste that burned the bodies are the, the lowest of the lowest of the outcasts. And she, <coughs> she is betrothed to someone. She's very young. She's 13 or 12. She's betrothed to someone in the same caste. And they discover the, the first signs of leprosy on her skin. So she's expelled from that already outcast community and she wanders around Benares not even able to look at anyone her caste is so low and she's finally taken in by uh, Mother Teresa's sisters and uh, treated for the leprosy with no problem and she stays there and she finally decides to become a nun and uh, she trains to be a nun and, and in the in Mother Teresa's system at that time, when a nun was fully fledged or fully ordained, they had a kind of graduation ceremony, and in that ceremony of full ordination or graduation, uh, the nun's name is read out and the place where she's going to go to work with the uh, Mother Teresa's uh, communities. So, in the meantime, in New York City, AIDS is breaking out, and none of the American Catholics want to take on the, the caring of the AIDS patients. So Mother Teresa then uh, approaches the, either the mayor of New York or the governor of New York State, I can't remember which, but she basically browbeats the guy until he gives her a free house in Greenwich and his comment is he's never seen anyone no mafioso is as tough as Mother Teresa so she gets this empty house and the um, local parishioners the Catholic parishioners they they fit it all up for the nuns with all kinds of fancy furniture she chucks all the furniture out and of course, uh, our nun, meanwhile, in Benares, she gets read out where she's going. She's going to New York City. So she ends up going to New York City, and she walks into this house, and she's, all her life, she's carried water. Water's never been something that's just available. She has had to go to the well, carry the water, and then use it. And all of a sudden, the nuns, she and three others, discover a shower. 
and then just walk into the shower and with all the robes on and just giggle and laugh with this water coming out of the shower head. Very beautiful. And then she took, uh, they took care of all kinds of uh, far out people in Greenwich Village. So here is a woman able to adapt from such a cultural low point, such a existential low point, and then she's able to go to a sophisticated culture and take care of the uh, most destitute and most um, um, neglected, some of the most neglected people, karma yoga, and that's a very it's a very valid path if one can do that, surrender to, to a one's vocation. And then the other two pictures, Umpa uh, Cha and uh, Ramana Maharshi said those are the jnana yogis, the yogis of wisdom. And, and that is our path, it's, it's a path of wisdom. But within it, the, the ideas of service are very important. Generosity is very, very important. Because there's, there's something very beautiful about a heart which is uh, imbued with a sense of generosity and, and wanting to help. And um, so it's been really nice to see here this last few weeks uh, um, a very productive community and uh, everyone offering their skills to the life of the monastery. And it's really nice to see different. Some people can cook food and some people can knock trees down and some people can drive, and some people can minister, and some people can help. And the sense of um, generously participating, offer, offering one's skills, offering one's energy uh, for the life of something bigger than oneself. That's terrific, isn't it? It's really very beautiful. Now, certainly we can get obsessed with work, or we can get restless with work, and so on. But it needn't be that way. We can do it well. We can do it well. We can learn things, and these are the worldly dharmas. You know, to like to learn, to learn something. Um, say our good treasurer. Uh, she. She she hasn't got a background in accounting, but she she's got a background in um, project management. And uh, we needed a treasurer six, seven, eight years ago, and she reluctantly volunteered. She says, "You know, I'm going to have to learn this," and so she's have a, a really. Uh, steep learning curve of trying to figure out how you do accounts and so on. But now I see her, and she's uh, she's got she's got the skills now, she's got the competence, and she can offer that to the sangha, in which is a very significant offering, very very important. And, the, and nice to see just the joy uh, arising in her from having um, developed a skill and then offer it to the sangha. And 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 these are not, you know, these aren't. These are important. You know, so we, we emphasize it, meditation, obviously, in a monastery, but these whole very human aspects of life uh, are very important because monastic life and, and any life, it's not just a technique. And life is not lived as a technique. Life is lived uh, as a whole. And in the wholeness of our life, there, there is social interrelationship, there is our capacity to create and do and learn. And, and uh, I think, at least this is what I've learned from my own um, time with Lopa Semedo and, and, and in Thailand with the monks there, that this social aspect of monastic life was, uh, is, uh, was very important, important for me. 
because it gave me a vehicle uh, of expression and development which balanced out the, the meditative life. Sometimes I think myself, like, like when, I, when I went to England, I was a very young monk, and Lopacha wasn't worried. He said, no, no, you have to stay in the forest and just meditate all the time. And he said, he said, you'll learn something here. This is all right. It's a good place to practice. And so I've always had faith in, in that. You know, if Lopacha said I could learn something, then I'll probably learn something. Hampstead Vihara, you've probably heard stories, uh, was uh, on a very, very busy street, and it was very noisy, very, very noisy. And everyone was was uh, meditating and people were drunk outside and there's a rock band playing and cars and taxis and, and that and the Dhamma talked to Lone Pacha said, you know, you, you think that sound is bothering you? And I said, just don't go out there and bother that sound. And that to me was an indication that and like the idea of a perfect environment and a perfect place for practice was a kind of very limiting very, very limiting viewpoint of life and, and what we mean by practice. So the worldly dharmas, uh, the development of, of generosity, you know, having a sense of service is very central to the happiness of monastic life in any life, I think. Um, so we, we like as monastics, we're encouraged to um, to upatak, to... to um, serve the elders, to look out for them. And that's a sensitivity that we as Westerners um, might not have naturally, but because it's encouraged and, and we see others doing it, we, 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 we develop this lovely, lovely um, sense of otherness. We're no longer, look at, because Western life can be often very narcissistic, even, even meditation can be a very kind of, I'm, I'm getting, I'm doing my practice, as it were, and that that capacity to look out at the needs of others, uh, to look out uh, for for the welfare of others and for the welfare of the place, uh, is something that gets you out of your own head, in a good way, in a good way. Certainly, we can we can we can get overly concerned and so on, but just in the general nature of things. This, this sense of generosity and, and a commitment to the welfare of, of everyone, which is the idea of philanthropy, the love of humanity, um, is a foundation for enlightenment. It's, it's very, very important. Because if, if we enter into our meditation from that buoyancy of having, having given and having served and, and, and been sensitive to others, then uh, our minds don't... I, I think that because they're not grasping and trying to get something, there's a kind of freedom in the mind, a joy in the mind. Again, we can, you know, we can get too busy, so we have days where we don't work and we try to be with ourselves, and today is one of those types of days. So that's one realm, isn't it? One realm of Buddhist, Buddhist ideas, or just human ideas of, of practice, as we say, of just living a, living a good life. And, that, and that's, uh, that's, not, uh, that's not the goal. It's not the goal to have a perfect monastery, but as a foundation for enlightenment. Um, so I'm really, I'm really grateful for everyone. I was away just as away only a few days, and all kinds of things have been done. And I know everyone works very hard. So sadhu, please, please uh, do reflect on your good karma and and your goodness in, in putting forth that kind of effort. Certainly, as senior monk. 
uh, and when that happens, it just makes my life so 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 nice, so easy. So my my gratitude and compliments. And then the other realm of of of, uh, of our lives is where we we look at uh, our experience in in the way of phenomena, in the way of the five khandhas or the uh, sense bases or different ways that we define this. And this is this is a kind of second level of life. And, and I think you know we're always living in a kind of two levels of life in the in the sangha. We have the level of vinaya or kawat or or monastic culture or Buddhist culture or uh, whatever you want to call that, that's the social level. And within that, we also have the level of inner reflection. We're watching the, the movement of the mind, the nature of happiness and unhappiness. And the second level of reflection is something that some people don't really have very well. They're just very, very much caught up in the objects of their experience, always uh, reacting to the social situation, and their minds are projected outwards all the time, trying to... Uh, either absorb into happiness or somehow get out of the unhappiness we have. Whereas us, for us, for or, or anyone who is a contemplative, there is that that other dimension of life, which is the dimension of reflection, contemplation, or awareness, and that's that's um, crucial, isn't it? So even for us, if a, if a, if, a, if a monk is a, like keeps the vinaya but keeps it in a fearful way, or keeps it in a um, judgmental way, judging, judging others, then that, that monk is not aware of the mind. He's just uh, keeping, keeping rules out of a sense of fear or duty. He's not really aware of the mind. What's the mind? Why is the mind doing that? So there's still a strong sense of self and attachment to the rules. Another monk might not keep the rules and rationalize behavior to excuse the non-keeping of rules, and that, that monk is also not aware. Both, both are the extremes. But monastic life can't just be rule keeping. It has to be more than that, doesn't it? You can't you can't live this life for a large number of years if it's just simply a technique or a bunch of rules. It has to have it has to be imbued both with, I think, some sense of expression, either whatever way one does that, and a sense of strong reflection, but both are necessary. So in the in the reflective part of our lives the, this, the real skill that we're developing is the skill of letting go, non-attachment, non-grasping. Um, you you remember those of you who've seen the uh, Buddha comes to Sussex. Is that the one where Lampa Cha is asked by the producer, "So what's the you know how would you what's the essence of Buddhism or how would you say what's the shortest way you could say Buddhism is?" And Lampa Cha would say, "Ploy Wang Wang and let go." empty, let go. And then David asked again, David, the producer, asked him, what do you mean by letting go? And Lopacha laughed and explained something. But um, the general art of letting go is something that uh, needs to be understood. So we talk a lot about attachment. And, and understanding attachment, understanding letting go is the essence of the, 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 the contemplative love. The contemplative practices we do, the reflective practices we do, because if you understand that, then also social situations are practice. If you don't understand that, then social situations can seem complex and and difficult. And one wants to go into a more uh, sensory deprived kind of situation and meditate a lot, which is okay. Um, but there, there, it's very easy to build up a kind of 
duality in in uh, Buddhist life, where one kind of activity is much, much, much more um, um, it's more practice. And this is our kind of the way we use it. This is practice, and and the rest of life is somehow not practice. I've never been taught that kind of dichotomy. I've always been taught, like Lompa, from Lompa Liam's teaching, he said work is just a change of posture. Now, obviously. Uh, meditation brings you to more more refined states of mind, but the development of parami, the development of understanding where attachments are, different things arise in different contexts and different situations with different people. So I think all of us, were, you know, like I've seen the things that I've uh, had to face in situations of non, in non-formal uh, practice situations, facing people or or giving public talks or things like that. The things that I learned there, what I should. I've never learned on a cushion. But things I learned on a cushion, I wouldn't have learned also in, in social interaction. So for me, finding, finding, a, finding a way to make it all relevant, all useful, all, all important, that everything is important, everything is important, and to enter into everything that we do, whether it's formal meditation or um, chopping up a tree, in the way of care and concern and mindfulness and then watching the mind within that to me seems a, a whole life a kind of complete life not some kind of segmented life from uh, opinions and views and biases but that's me that's what works for me um, but you can see that if, if, if one favors uh, one kind of practice let's say it's just being active all the time and one doesn't have a way to come to stillness of mind that's an imbalance but also if one always needs the refinement of stillness and can't interact in ways which are mindful and in the path of letting go, that, that can also be an imbalance. So how do we do both? That's what this kind of monastery is about. This is a monastery that tries to have both of those um, possibilities encouraged. So what do we mean? what's letting go? What's letting go? Well, what's, what's attachment? attachment do you have uh, I always do a sort of a Socratic thing I always ask people like, you don't have to answer but what, what, what do you do for letting go and do you have do you have a kind of constant way of, of non-grasping do you understand what that means is there something you can turn to for for say like Lompo Semedo's way of non-grasping is the sound of silence he turns his mind to that it goes to emptiness, non-grasping. What is non-grasping? What is attachment? Upadana in the Paticca Samuppada. So we have Vedana, Tanha, Upadana. Right? So, so grasping, attachment. Um, I think it's most obvious manifestation of attachment is, is self-thinking. Me and my thinking. And so Sakaya Ditti, taking personally, Akandas rather than seeing them as, as objects. So when we begin to see our emotional world as an object that arises in consciousness, in, in awareness, we begin to understand what letting go is. When we begin not to believe in the self-narratives and we see thought as an object that arises and ceases in awareness, we begin to understand letting go. When we see memory that comes and goes in thought, Oh, and with emotion that arises and ceases and we don't get caught and believe in the narratives and we're beginning to understand letting go. When we see self-doubt coming up as a thought, not a reality, not something we 
believe in and attach to, we are beyond self-doubt because we know it as an object. We go beyond doubt. Not because we always feel confident, but we just know self-doubt as an object rather than being the subject of that. When we feel um, inspired and uh, motivated and um, think we're really doing well, and we see that as an object that arises and ceases and not worthy of attachment, then we don't suffer the depression when we don't feel inspired because we see non-inspiration, non um non-confidence, uh, self-doubt, we see those as conditions which arise and cease in consciousness, in awareness. So our refuge then is an awareness of change and, and the more we understand that, the more we do that because the right practice in Buddhism comes from understanding rather than willfully trying to get rid of anything. So I would ask you what is your understanding of non-grasping? Uh, how does attachment take, take place in your own mind? What kind of reminders would you need to introduce around those areas of pernicious attachment that tend to um, obsess you or you can just get you caught up? What kind of practices could you do to awaken to that more quickly? And that seems to me much more relevant than just some kind of meditation technique because that the kind of attachments we have to worry or to resentments or you know this range of things that we go through those are the those are the constants aren't they where the sense of self really um, manifests very strongly and 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 the not knowing of that the 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 getting kidnapped by that and and figuring out in my own practice that whole, why do I get caught up in that self scenario? Why does attention always get kidnapped by that? Why am I always preoccupied with this particular um, type of uh, thinking pattern or emotional pattern? And how can I awaken to that? Not get rid of it, not deny its existence, but no longer be attached to it. So non-grasping is very important to understand. Very important. Um, once one understands non-grasping with one thing, then you can apply that to many, many things. It's non-grasping. Non-grasping does not mean not having any kind of feeling, because then you'd be in real trouble. But it means the non-identity with, seeing as change, seeing it that it's just not worth going there. Some areas we're very good at it. You know, like some, some areas, um, say some people don't have that much anger. And they, um, they can just see anger as a condition arising and ceasing. But maybe they're very lustful, and lust is very powerful in their minds. Well, the one area where you know it, where it works, where you can see something arise and not grasp it, then that's the area that you know, that's, there's wisdom there. I've understood that. Now apply it to the areas where you get caught up, where selfie is very, very strong, where, where, where the sense of me and others is very, very strong. Uh, with a sense of, of, of uh, where, where that, where that freeing, that, that liberating um, perspective that this is just a condition, it's all it is, it's just a memory, it's just thought, where that liberating perspective is not in place, that's where we have to work. Now some of that work we do on the cushion, you know, when, when, we, when we sit and we meditate, that's what we hopefully are doing, is we're practicing non-attachment, non-grasping. Now, if we're practicing attachment to the um, 
object of awareness, and then we're moving away from that and feeling um, angry or uh, not wanting to work or not wanting to be uh, in complex situations or not wanting uh, sense inputs, then the danger is we just get, we're like a horse in a stall. You know, we, we can get an object of meditation and we can certainly tranquilize the mind, but that tranquility isn't necessarily wisdom. It's not necessarily wisdom. It can be just a, a, a kind of damping down of consciousness for a period of time, which is refined and tranquil, but as soon as we take the blinkers off and there are sense inputs, um, then the same old patterns come up again. Not necessarily, but that you know that can happen. So the, the, the capacity to sustain awareness through all postures, uh, through all endeavors, through all, all human interactions, um, is is a, is an arduous task. It's a, it's a challenging one, and we do it by beginning to understand that that awareness of change is really you know the heart of the practice, rather than just focusing on an object. So then we use the object of our meditation to develop this capacity to focus on change. So it doesn't really matter about the object, and we're not concerned about the object. It's that capacity to, to know the way things are, as in Ichitukanata. And if that's what our formal practice is about, or sitting and walking, then that's going to translate into what we do all the time. Our reflective mind will now have that capacity, that insight, that strength, that, that, that preference to see life in that way. And then it becomes very edifying. Then if I, my buttons get pressed at a, at a meeting or um, whatever it might be, I get a tick bite or you know, I get all frightened, then that way of seeing this is an Ichidukanata is already there. You're already, you've, you've been doing it in your formal practice and it's just a natural way of looking at things. But if formal practice is just simply holding on to an object and not having that perspective, then it's a, you know, it can be restful, but will it really work? And that's you have to see. Does it really lead to letting go? Does it really lead to non-attachment? If it does, then good, then good. Very helpful. So non, non-grasping, I don't know, my, my way of non-grasping, I go to the heart chakra. I have a, I have a way of practice where if I, if I am constant with the heart chakra, then, then there's always a sense of empathy for the things around me. And um, I just try to develop that, very simple. Wake up in the morning, first thing, go to the heart. I'm getting um, uh, irritated at someone, try to go to the heart. Um, I don't want to fulfill my duties, I'm lazy, go to the heart. I get uh, too busy on the table saw, go to the heart. So it's a kind of constant way to remember what non-grasping is, letting go is. Um, So... And I know Lomposanera uses sound of silence, so I would ask you, first of all, do you get it? Do you understand what Upadana is in your own practice? Do you understand what that is? And then, do you have a way of, of remembering that? Do you have a constant way of remembering that? Can you make that constant? Does your formal practice um, nurture or, or nourish or encourage non-grasping? Does your formal practice then very easily um, help you, assist you, let you see where grasping takes place? 
so that when your buttons get pressed, you've got an incredible opportunity for purification. Because this is the, the thing about some, you know, the, 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 the human interactions that we have, the, the annoyances or fears or whatever gets triggered by those human interactions can be very, very powerful and useful. And if you see them through the lens of non-grasping, there's a purification, there's a letting go of those kind of karmic habits. And the sense of self lessens and, and the mind has more and more... Um, it's, these, these things begin to cease in the mind. So a, a, a strong practice, a, a strong understanding of non-grasping and sitting should lead to really, really helpful results. Because if something, if something gets triggered in you, some annoyance or resentment or fear or, or whatever it is, something strong, that's a, if one sees that, that's a real opportunity for now witnessing, making conscious this, this kind of, um, this movement of mind towards a strong sense of self. And now you're witnessing it, you know, you're not believing it. It arises, you see it cease, it arises, you see it cease, and you have to really, you have to really stay with it, don't you? But in the staying with it, you begin to realize some of the ideas around Niroda ceasing of some of greed, hatred and delusion you're going to cease in the mind why? because now you're you're fully conscious of these habit patterns but you also understand what non-grasping is you understand what letting go is and in that understanding you have confidence you have faith the determination makes a lot of sense you can stay with it and you, you actually want to stay with it because you know oh, this is this is this is important this is a very good opportunity if you don't understand non-grasping, then of course when something, some significant material gets triggered in your mind, you just say, oh gosh, you know, oh, get it. my practice is really bad, this is really bad, and you kind of, uh, you get caught in self-view, and either uh, think, or whatever you think, you get caught in self-view, you don't see the opportunity. So the, the gentle art of letting go, non-grasping, ploy wong, important idea in Buddhism, can be misunderstood. Can be misunderstood, and people think that, that non-grasping means one never has any kind of emotional turmoil. Or, but these things get triggered. The, one of the, the one of the examples I was giving in Toronto is when my uh, I was teaching a retreat. I just finished teaching a retreat in uh, in Toronto. It's a nine-day retreat, and I was staying in a. I think I was staying in a hotel, and in the evening, and I was to take a flight the following morning to Ottawa to see my brother and my mom, <coughs> and I got a, a phone call saying that my brother and mom were in an, uh, a car train accident. My brother had driven across a level crossing and didn't see the train coming. And it was interesting how my mind reacted, and, and I didn't have, that's all the information I had, I couldn't get a hold of my brother and I could only get a flight. The next flight was next morning, so I was in this horrible state of unknowing, and my mind just went berserk. It just went, it just went crazy worried, and in a way which I had actually no control of. It's like bigger than me, much, much bigger than me. Now that was a trigger. So what could I do? I just, I just did walking meditation very, very vigorously for about three hours until it settled down. But it was such, so much not me not me. So someone might have said to me, some, you know, some clever uh, person might have said to me, oh, you're attached. Uh, 
but that would have been really unkind, wouldn't it? You're so attached. But that actually, it was it was it wasn't me that was attached. It was just somehow the the energy of my relationship to my brother and mom just manifested in this horrible, horrible, frightened way. And but still, uh, non-grasping can be practiced there. I could still practice non-grasping. What was that? It was just going to the body, doing walking meditation moving away from the narrative, all those kinds of things, until that energy started to somehow become a bit more balanced. Uh, so non-grasping doesn't mean no event. It doesn't mean you know, nothing, at least that's the way I see it, nothing happening. You know, things happen. So uh, I'll leave that for your consideration tonight. Andamayam Dhammagataya Sadhu Karanda Dhamma Se Sadhu Sadhu